ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the Buster Show podcast. Today, we have a very special guest per usual. Victor Solomon is in the house. How's it going, my friend? Good, man. How are you? Good to see you. I'm doing great. You have an incredible background and it is not, <laughs> it is not photoshopped in behind you. What, what are those behind you for people who are watching on video? Yeah, so this is these are some pieces from my project called Literally Balling that I've been doing for the last couple of years, where I'm taking these icons of basketball, like backboards and the balls themselves, and reimagining them with these techniques that had been historically reserved for the elite. And the bit of storytelling is that, uh, you know, this super accessible, universally regarded sport that anyone can walk up and start playing can bring you to these other opportunities and these other echelons of life and celebrating the platform in basketball and the vehicle that can take you to these new heights. That's awesome. So how, how do you get your start in art? Is that, did you have dreams of being an NBA player and then it turned into art like for a lot of us or how, how did that begin? Sure. I mean, I'll go way back. So I grew up in Boston and my actual real dream was to be an NHL player. I was obsessed with hockey um, <clears throat> because the Bruins were hot at that time. Bobby Hull was around. I used to walk to elementary school every day past this little mom and shop sporting goods store. And they had like this amazing goalie mannequin in the window with all the gear. And it just looked like the coolest thing ever, but it was so expensive. And my family just didn't have money like that for the gear and the ice time and all those sorts of things. So um, we just didn't, pursue that road and ended up gravitating towards basketball because of its accessibility is we just didn't have the resources and I just was able to walk up and start playing. Um, so basketball very quickly became a part of my life there. And it, I, as soon as I got involved in the sport, I found the community that it was able to bring because people were coming from all these different backgrounds and all these different cultures. And it didn't matter what your race was or what your financial status was or your family status was, everyone on the court had the same goal in mind. It was very clean. Get that thing into that hoop more times than the other guys and we win. So it was like very pure in that way. And I felt like it was a beautiful way to build community. So that was just kind of something very, very early on that was important to me with basketball. And that just kind of stuck with me throughout my life and I kind of pursued different paths along the way. My ambitions actually were around filmmaking and was pursuing that track for a while but as you know mobilizing production is expensive and exhausting and you need to get a lot of people to do get an idea out of your head so i was feeling a bit bogged down of that from that and i just kind of wandered into this stained glass shop one day just looking for a little hobby and a little way i'm sure like yourself you know you're always trying to challenge yourself and learn something new and try out a new learn a new skill or something like that. Yep. So I just walked into this um, stained glass shop and uh, just ran into these, like going back to community, ran into these great 80 year old guys that have been doing it their whole lives. And they were kind of just hanging out and they loved that I was curious about the technique. And uh, they kind of took me under my wing and I apprenticed under there just at, again, just as a fun little hobby, trying something new. And the first piece I made was this basketball backboard because the sport was cool, meant so much to me from a community-wide wise thing. And I was just like, oh, this would be a fun thing to make. I didn't really think that much of it and posted the first one on my social and I got a ton of attention. And then 
that led to some press. And then six months later, we were showing our Art Basel. And a couple of months after that, we had a show in New York and just been rolling with it ever since then. So um, it's a very long way to answer your question, but it started very purely from my love for basketball. And then I've just kind of organically stumbled into this thing and then I've just been rolling with it ever since. That's awesome. It's cool to hear that it was so organic because that's not, you know, that's not always the case for, it's usually not the case for people who, you know, end up doing what they're doing. Um, it's, that, someone asked me the other day, they were like, they were like, oh, is this, is this going as planned? And I was like, play it. I was like, this is right, right. so such a crazy world that I could have never planned this out. So I, I'm having fun and it's been life-changing and, and um, it's led me to be able to have conversations with busters. So life is good. Well, I feel like that's how all the, the great things are, because if you're not just doing it organically, you won't stick with it through the ups and downs. Um, you know, that's for passion about anything. I mean, a great easy example of that in the last few years is um, let's say people who just liked the concept of cryptocurrency, but weren't, you know, in it for the investment sake, they did better than the people who were in it for the investment sake, because any rational investor wouldn't have stuck with it for so long without it doing well. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that's true for pretty much every profession because um, so somebody actually asked me yesterday in regards to, um, to uh, collectibles. They were like, um, how would you recommend, you know, somebody be successful in it? And my thought, and I'm, I'm sure you can relate to this on, on the art front, was if they're not passionate about it, they're not going to just be having conversations casually about the subject. And that's when you really like get the meat of the, the knowledge and experience and information. Do you sort of feel the same way for, you know, on, on the art front? Oh, I mean, I think that's something that is applicable to your point in every walk of life and, and especially with art and especially with this project that I'm trying to do here, because there's levels of experience that you can have with it and, and none is better or worse than the other. But the surface level is like, oh, there's a shiny thing. I love basketball. There's a shiny backboard or a shiny ball. That's cool. And I think there's a lot of stuff in the space around basketball that's just kind of arbitrarily shiny to try to catch your eye and sell something or whatever, which is whatever. Um, no shit. I'm just, that's kind of level one. Level two is a level of storytelling. I was like, okay, these, the, the technique of stained glass was a, uh, very, very expensive in medieval times. So kings and churches would use it as basically an early way to show off their power and wealth over the community. So the material has this added bit of storytelling. And then we take, you know, the culture around the players and the sport now and what dominance they have over greater culture and, and bringing those things into it. So I think zooming out to your greater point, I think those levels exist in every realm and it takes the true sort of passionate user of that thing or the, or participation in the space in an organic and like authentic way to get past the surface layer of anything for sure how do you think social media has changed you know the ability for somebody like yourself to be an artist and be discovered so you know quickly in terms <laughs> when somebody can start now and be discovered. Whereas, 
you know, before like anything like filmmaking too, or, or, you know, yeah. any content medium, you know, it, it took years. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, I mean, you're a great example of the opportunity that I think social has provided in that the distribution is in all of our hands now. So whatever you're doing, <clears throat> you can, you don't need to wait for a gatekeeper to give you permission to start sharing that with the world. And it, it gives the opportunity for the sort of organicness of how this project grew was just, it's so shareable. It's so, it's moves around in a way that things just didn't really, weren't really able to do before. So um, I definitely owe what I've been doing to that. And it's also just nice to like have, have a space for inspiration and to kind of explore and experience what everyone else is doing. Um, and just kind of keep an eye on different little pockets of culture that you may not be actively participating in, but it's just a, it's such a fun way to, to be able to explore and experience all those ecosystems. 100%. So you started with basketball hoops and stained glass. Mm -hmm. How has it migrated into trophies? Where, where, what does that timeline look like? Um, I'll try to condense it, but basically we had some early successes just creating these art pieces and we had some, um, a lot of fun time, like with some of the collectors that grabbed them and, and things like that. And I, I had this moment, this kind of existential moment after a, a kind of a bad experience with the gallery. And I was, I, I just kind of ran out to Palm Springs just to clear my head and try to make a plan for a destination um, because I, I felt like I was kind of doing stuff and I was having fun with it, but it, I didn't know where it was going and I didn't have any, there was a lot of energy, but I didn't know where to direct it. So I wanted to have something to work towards. And I kind of just sat out there for a couple of days and just thought about what the bigger story I was trying to tell was. And it was really about the opportunity for evolution and growth and sort of elevation of an experience. And it's, that's a very straight line towards thinking about trophies. Uh, you know, I think basketball and sport is really the only clean meritocracy that exists in the world where I can't network my way to the championship and I can't finesse my way into holding the Larry O'Brien trophy. I just need to be better than the other guy. And that's very pure in this way that I think is what makes it so fun to root for sports is because the, it makes sense. There's no real nuance to it. There's a, it's a very deep, you know, X's and O's, you can get into all that stuff. But I think fundamentally sport is very clean in that way. And then the object to, that's meant to celebrate that, that's meant to be the, you know, the final piece of a lifelong journey that these athletes have been pursuing should be as thoughtful and innovative and creative as the people that are pursuing it. So I, I, I kind of like put all those pieces together and just thinking that the trophy as sort of a totem for accomplishment and celebration of that journey and the dedication, everything that goes into that deserves to be better. 
across the board, this is not just related to basketball, but just, I think in, in a lot of ways, the actual object that's representing that moment is almost an afterthought or had been. And <clears throat> I really got excited about that as an opportunity because there were also a lot of things too, where it's like, there's kind of no rules with what a trophy has to be. Right. Um, which is kind of fun. And there's a lot of like tradition in it. And there's a lot of history and like be able to be able to like physically encapsulate and symbolize the moment of like getting to the mountaintop with some object felt really special. So it was just on my mind. I just kind of was like, that would be an, that would be an interesting final chapter for what I'm doing. That would be like an interesting destination to work towards. And not long of, not long after that, uh, a woman called Maria Laughlin from the NBA reached out to me and she had just been seeing what I was doing. And she was like, would you be interested in working with us on stuff? Just like in general, of course, like that was a dream come true. And <clears throat> we had a few calls and I was in New York, we had a meeting. And the first meeting I was like, who's in charge of the trophies? And she was like, slow down. We just, we're just getting started here, but let's keep it in mind. So throughout the next couple of years, we did a couple of things together. And towards the back of 2019, the G League was going through a big rebrand. And they were like, hey, there's some interest internally about the G League getting a new set of trophies. Um, I'm going to put you up for it. And she put me up for it. And she connected me with this guy over there called Christopher Arena, who is the head of on-court brand partnerships. And... He has been with the league now for, I think, 30 years and has seen it all. And yeah. he's a brilliant guy, loves the game, like super historian, knowledgeable about everything. And his partner on that particular project was a guy called Tawan Watson. And we just set off on G League trophies. And the G League is very interesting. Sorry, I'm just kind of jump running into this. If there's No, please. Yeah. Jump in, jump in if we want to um, um, structure it a little bit more. But... Um, but the G League was going through this interesting moment where they were like <clears throat> recontextualizing themselves in a way to try to build some more story around the league and more branding around the league in a way that I thought was really cool. And the G League was a perfect, I mean, as you know, the G League is like where the NBA experiments with a lot of rule changes and shot clock stuff and this and that so it's like it's it's not only a place for teams to develop their talent but it's also for the league to develop its practices so it was very poetic that we took on that challenge first and we spent um we spent most of the crazy 2020 lockdown working on the set of trophies for that project and <clears throat> it was an incredible collaboration because for everything you might think about the kind of corporate bureaucracy infrastructure of the NBA, I think Christopher and Tawan really empowered me to be like, this can be whatever. And some of those early conversations were like, there's no rules of what a trophy is, which is pretty, which is to their credit, an amazing perspective and stance to have for a collaboration like that. They were kind of like, we've seen what you do. We love it. They, they kind of deferred to my expertise and the world that I've been building. And they were just like, let's just see what happens. Well, the funny so, thing is now you've raised the bar, but before that, 
it was just from the majority of trophies, it was just a stand and something. Like there, there wasn't anything, you know, yeah. significant. Pretty much. And, and, and where we landed with the G League stuff, and I'll send you all this stuff afterwards, but where we landed with the G League stuff was, was very innovative for a trophy concept at all. In that, to your point, there's no base, there's no metal, there's no, none of those like obvious, there's no marble, there's no like columns. We basically just like, okay, the G League is meant to be innovative and a place for experimentation. And let's just throw out everything that we thought you knew about trophies and start from the ground up. And basically what we did is we kind of took some tenants from the G League, they have some very specific aesthetic guidelines around color and texture and storytelling. You know, a G League player is very different from an NBA player in a lot of ways of like, they're going for their shot, they're being developed and they're growing. And there's a certain roughness and grittiness of their game and their personalities because they're still kind of fine tuning and finding themselves in this way that I think is really special. So what we did is we kind of re reimagined the G League logo man and the ball with this like very rough kind of like co concrete type of texture and then rendered it in this really black um, kind of hard color that's in line with all the G League stuff. And we suspended it within this crystal clear column. Um, <clears throat> so it just kind of looks like this impossible thing. And then it has this black to clear gradient, which is supposed to be showing the opportunity of the G League's platform as a place to elevate and come from the roughness and darkness and, and grit of that to this like beautiful, elegant, refined excellence on the other side of it. So That's very super, cool. yeah, and super proud of it. And again, one of these things where it's just like, it's just so, I mean, not to, not to be whatever and try to gas myself up, but it was just so different from trophies that had existed before. And um, to their credit, they were like, yeah, this is cool. We get it. Let's do something different. It's meant to be different. And uh, we'd went there with it. So in the process of going through that, I kind of built some equity creatively and otherwise with Christopher and his team. So as the 75th anniversary of the NBA came up, we were like, let's use this as an opportunity to reimagine the NBA trophies. And as a fan, as someone involved in the, in the sport, you've seen this stuff for years, it's been all over the place. This thing is like, has no real relationship to that thing. The, you know, that trophy doesn't look like it. it's even in the same universe as this trophy. And then it was just like, a, it was a mess. And I think part of the reason going back to my conversation with Mary was there wasn't really an answer because there was no one that was like owning that thing. And then when Arena took it over, Arena, Arena took it over and he and I got together and we were like, okay, everything's out the window. And what we're trying to do is create like a, a cohesive ecosystem where there's a relationship between the Larry O'Brien trophy and the summer league finals MVP or whatever. So it's just like, what we're trying to do is celebrate the sort of continuity of like the fraternity of the NBA. Right. And there's some details we'll get into later, but the point that we really were pursuing with all of this stuff was, if you looked at all of these trophies on the table, you should know that that's a collection. 
that's a family and that every player in the league has an opportunity to acquire all of these if they're disciplined and and you know go through <clears throat> everything that they can or whatever so this is like opportunity for that envisioning some players trophy shelf where it's like boom 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 collect them all <laughs> collect them all exactly collect them all so um the short version of, of what i was just trying to say there was like we just wanted to create continuity from an aesthetic perspective from a conceptual perspective from a narrative perspective and it was such a incredible and unprecedented project that arena and i both had reverence for we were like, look, no one's ever done this in any, forget sport, any cult, whatever. Like, this is such a cool thing to be a part of. Let's go all the way there and create a collection instead of a bunch of random one-off things. So Very cool. we set out on that in 2020. And now uh, for this season, we've, over the course of the season, we've been unveiling all of the pieces finally. And it's been super exciting to see everyone's reaction and, and uh, continue to unveil. And uh, yeah. So you're working on the Larry O'Brien trophy. What, when did you get the news for that? And how did you receive that? And what were your first thoughts? Yeah. So it went a little bit in the other direction in that when Arena and I started working on this project, we were like, look, here's the list of everything that we need to do. And there's certain things, there's player of the month, there's the slam dunk contest, there's uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar social justice trophy, there's, um, you know, all-star game MVP, Every, the, the, just this huge flight of everything. And yeah, people forget about those player of the months. Player of the month, man. It's, it's very slept on. Um, but, but to that point, like we really took every single piece of it seriously. And it's like, probably most people will never even see the player of the month trophy, but the Why player, I think it just is, is under publicized because it's a, it's like, a, it's like a smaller award that I, I don't think a lot of people know about. And players don't want to post and brag about it because they're midway through the season. Yeah, I get, I, which I get it. Um, but I'd be posting that everywhere. <laughs> um, well, the, the point of it was that there was, we didn't, we didn't half step on anything, even player of the month that we were like, okay, look, this is like, I actually didn't even know that anything was issued. Possibly there hadn't been anything issued. It might've just been a title before now. So there were no trophies. I don't Physical. think it might've been a little plaque or something like that, but there was a lot of things like that, where it was like, um, Here's, here's an honor that we announce, but there is not necessarily an object to celebrate that. I, Player of the Month might have been one of those things. But By but, the way, random, I think the MVP award should just go to whoever has the most Player of the Months. I think that's the easiest way to yeah. do that, but that's my opinion. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an interesting conversation to, to have because take Rookie of the Year, for instance. Josh Giddy won Rookie of the Month for we do it five times a season he won four of the five and then was not the rookie of the year so an interesting um, date above my pay grade for sure <laughs> but uh interesting debate definitely um definitely so um 
anyways, zooming out. So, you know, we had this huge list of, of pieces that were like opportunities. So it's like, okay, we need to redesign the player of the month. We need to design uh, the dunk contest. We need to design all of these things. And at the bottom of the list, because it's the biggest is Larry O'Brien. And right above that is are the conference trophies and then the finals MVP. And that collection is produced by Tiffany's and was always going to continue be, be produced by Tiffany's. Um, but they didn't in get involved in the creative direction of the pieces. So when Arena and I embarked on this stuff, I, I got back with my team and we just we just made design concepts for everything. And we just went sort of in a very unspecial and unsophisticated way. We were like, here's the idea for this thing. What do we think? Let's change that. Let's change this. And that each piece went through its own evolution, including when we got to Larry O'Brien, conference trophies, all the stuff that Tiffany was going to produce. We kind of went back and forth, got our ducks in a row, shared those pieces with the Tiffany team, went back and forth through their processes. And then they set off to produce those pieces and we set off to produce our pieces and now it's all coming out and coming to fruition and the those pieces are the ones that are going to be unveiled for the 75th anniversary um all within the peg of this first new year so is that for next upcoming season or this finals it'll be presented so 2021-22 yeah. for those who are watching this in 2027 um crazy to think about huh <laughs> yeah yeah somebody might be watching this in 2098 mm -hmm. um well it's funny you say that because when we started working on this stuff we used the 75th anniversary as the peg to justify the redesign so we were like okay it's, it, it's been whatever it's been to this moment this 75th anniversary we're redesigning everything and we redesigned everything with the next 25 years in mind so we were like, this is the peg. And there's certain design elements that are referenced and we're not gonna touch them again until 100. So whatever we're unveiled this year is gonna be what the trophies are until then, which is super exciting. So like jumping ahead and maybe maybe we'll play with this, or whatever, but jumping ahead, for instance, the new Larry O'Brien base is two cylinders stacked. The top of the first cylinder has all the previous winners engraved into it. That's, is that a first? This is a first. Um, and the second ring is blank. And the second ring will start to be engraved with all of the future winners. And it has enough space on it to get us to the 100th anniversary. So by the time we get there, both of those discs will be filled with every team that's won the championship. Will there be a new one, though? So it'll be there's one produced every year or is it the same one? There's one produced every year. So, so when my Celtics win the championship this year, next year, the 21, when, when the New York Knicks win. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and that's kind of one of the biggest tenets of storytelling that we, that we were focused on as we were embarking on the design stuff is like, okay, you know, we're we're kind of throwing a bunch of stuff out the window, but at the same time, we want to be informed by everything that's existed before now. So we took inspiration from certain players, certain icons, 
certain things like that to inform how we approach the design for these new pieces. And even though we're embarking on this new era, we didn't want to forget the history and lineage that led up to this moment. So doubly honoring the teams that had won the championship with the new championship trophy, I felt like was a nice touch in bringing everyone forward and going back to that fraternity idea of like we're, we're bringing everyone with us. That's very cool. So for the winners this year, are you offering free engraving services for the next 25 years? Uh, no, I think that's kind of the cool peg is like your, your engraving will stop where your championship is. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? So each, yeah, each, yeah. each year is going to have this unique thing. Um, and it's just, it, it's very cool to see. That is very cool. Um, do you think about these trophies as collectibles as well? And the thought of any of them, you know, ever hitting a public market? I know, like, I know this is your pocket. And if you think about it, they're kind of the ultimate collectible. They are. You know what I mean? Um, and, you know, you'll see stuff pop up from time to time. Like you'll see, uh, you know, someone's championship ring pop up in a secondary market from time to time. I don't know how you feel about that from a collector standpoint, but it feels a little sad because it's like to have gotten to the point where you're selling that means probably something's up. So I think it depends on the context, right? Yeah. Like Bill Russell just sold everything for charity. Uh, he did it. He raised millions of dollars for the charities that he cares about. He's obviously older. He's done it all. He's lived with it all. The only thing he didn't sell was his Medal of Freedom. Wow. Um, and, but he sold everything else pretty much. And yeah. I think in contexts like that, I mean, it's, it's the ultimate grail because that stuff doesn't happen. Now, granted, the majority of cases, it's people selling because they want the money. And, you know, maybe they need it maybe they just don't care about the item um mm -hmm. i'd imagine it's more of the need it um you know it is a little sad but at the same time it's still you know sports history mm -hmm. and if it helped the guy you know that he did the right thing i mean you know he's a lot of these things are worth you know tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. so it's definitely not not nothing um but you know, with that being said, given what players make today, I doubt we'll see any ever hit the market unless it is strictly for charity. So I yeah. think going forwards, based on what players are making today, there will be only the Bill Russell type situation where they're selling it all for charity, then players needing the money because, you know, the average contract in the NBA is like 50 times what it was back in the day. Yeah. But that being said, maybe we'll see one hit, maybe we won't, but I, I would definitely keep an eye on one if it did. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, I'm, I'm not in the collector space the way you are, but I can imagine that since it has this ultimate scarcity to it, there's a specialness and there's a huge related marketplace because whether it's just sports memorabilia people or whether it's civic related, you know, uh, like the city that, that say, you know, someone's MVP trophy came up or whatever. Um, but yeah, interesting to think about it like that. Yeah. Trophies would sort of hit, you know, all the verticals, right? They hit the collector vertical, they hit museum worthy vertical and they hit city vertical, you know, those yeah. are 
those are the big ones, you mm-hmm. know, and that's that's where you you see the the pretty crazy numbers. Um, yeah. But yeah, that I mean, I haven't seen a real trophy. I don't think there's ever been an NBA trophy auctioned, but yeah, I don't see that ever happening because usually those are owned by the teams. And- by the teams, yeah. And I got to imagine that <clears throat> if the team is in a tough enough spot to be trying to sell their Larry O'Brien, then there's some real problem going on. Yeah, there's some, some de- definitely some, some real problems. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you see baseball and football rings come up the most because the rosters are so big. Right. Um you know, and, and if you play one game, I, I don't know what the minimum is in each sport, but if you play a certain amount of games on a team, even if you're traded, you get a ring. Mm-hmm. Like I could see an instance where, you know, let's say I play 30 games on a team, I'm traded to another team and I lose in the finals to the team that I played on. I don't want to keep that ring, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I, I think in oddball situations like that, I could also see them going live, but these are like, the way I look at these trophies that you're doing this year, and one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk so much is because this is the rookie of this trophy. Mm. Collectibles, the rookie okay. holds a significant premium oh. over the next 24 years. Interesting. Yeah. So these that's are right. the year designing. Let's call it the first thing is called the rookie. I mean, that, that's what it is in sports cards, but this, yeah. would, this would be like the debut trophy. I see. For, for you and for this design. Mm-hmm. So no matter pretty much whatever you do in the future, like Michael Jordan, if his uh, if his debut game worn jersey ever came up, it'll mm-hmm. sell for more than his NBA Finals jerseys. Wow, crazy! The debut holds that much of a premium. Mm-hmm. So this is your debut trophy, and pretty much whatever you do going forward, <laughs> this would be worth more. Yeah, interesting. Well, I hope I never see these on. A second mark. Um, because I mean, going back to like, going back to like my kind of desert epiphany of, of thinking about these things, this is the object that, that will stick with these players or that's meant to stick with these players to symbolize the finality of the journey that they had set out on when they were probably 10 years old or something like right. that. And all those nights in the gym and all that hard work and all that discipline got got them to the moment they were receiving this object so hopefully they're never in a spot and uh if they are that will definitely not happen i can guarantee you that um yeah. did you see john morant gift his uh did, yeah mm-hmm. what do you think about that you know it was interesting there was a lot of uh there was a lot of reaction around that and i actually thought <clears throat> this may this may be a little bit um sacrilegious to say but i actually think it's kind of interesting for there to be fluidity in that way in that it's like we are we are as a community selecting jaw for this honor and then it's jaws to to do with what he pleases and i think you know i think it was a really selfless thing um and I just thought, I, I, I haven't come to like a, a decision on it or anything like that. I just think it's interesting. And I don't know if it's good or bad. I don't know what, I just like, it's a unique experience and it's an interesting thing. Like for instance, uh, one, of the, one of the things that we did throughout this year was 
they had always been issuing, I didn't know this before we started on this, but they'd always been issuing all-star weekend rings to all the players that were selected. Right. And that one, you'll, you'll see those pop up on secondary markets yeah. a lot. There's a, some guy will get hot for a year and, and become an all-star selection, but <laughs> because, yeah, see them. Um, yeah. Um, but what they what they had been doing, they'd be doing this since the eighties. And what they had been doing the whole time is because the all-star week, the all-star team roster is in flux basically until that week, they didn't feel comfortable issuing the rings beforehand. So what they did at all-star weekend, they would take the sizes of all the players selected and everyone's names, and they would make the rings after the fact, and they would get delivered probably close to when they're making their playoff push. So it was so far away from the players and their experience. By the time they received it, you almost never heard about it. I didn't know they existed until we started working on this thing. But one of the big innovations that I'm proud of that we did with this is recontextualize that ring as an invitation. So we kind of just standardized, we spoke to a bunch of players and got their sizes. We kind of just picked one that was in the middle. We didn't put the name in the ring, but we personalized each of the boxes for the players that it goes out for. And then we just sent it out beforehand as a congratulations and invitation to come to the game. I and think that's so much better. Like the teams had so much fun with it. So like the Warriors, for instance, they had the kids of the players that were on the Warriors that were selected the all-star team, like bring the rings out. And the Celtics did that with Tatum. So it was like, and you saw like, uh, like LaMelo got his ring and was really excited about it when he came in. So we just like recontextualized the presentation of that moment um, and that honor in a way that I thought was very interesting. So I think oh, the reason I bring that story up at all is because we also give rings to the coaches and Monty Williams was selected as the coach for the West for the all-star team. I never thought and, about that. That's interesting. Yeah. Do the assistant yeah. coaches get them too, or just the head? So this, this is, so this is why I bring it up in the context of, of what Ja did with his award, Monty called us afterwards and he was like, Hey, uh, can you make rings for my staff? So all 15 coaches on his staff, we made rings for, they weren't part of the all-star team, but he, wanted to acknowledge them. And he kind of wanted to take the honor that we gave to him and share it with his team. That's very cool. So I thought that was a cool thing. And this job moment feels like a extension of that thing. So I think the thing I'm excited about more than if I've come to some resolution on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing is that we're bringing like a new a new energy to these honors and they're being interpreted in new ways and accepted in new ways. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I think that moment is really what the, what matters, right? It's that receiving, it's that opening, it turns every player into a kid and then it adds to the historical context yeah. of what those moments mean. Not that making an all-star game is winning a championship by any means, but it's something and for a lot of guys who don't win championships, which is going to be the majority of, mm -hmm. I don't know the exact math, but probably the majority awesome. of all-stars will not win championships. Mm -hmm. um, so having those moments for guys like that, I think matters for, you know, historical uh, records of the NBA. Yeah, agreed. Because they're, you know, I mean, there, you could make a real argument that certain players who never won a championship added billions of dollars in value to the NBA as a brand. Yeah. And they deserve, you know, those moments and recognition for that beyond, you know, just 
a check for their contract. Totally. And I think that was another thing that was kind of important to us as we embarked on this is like, obviously Larry, the Larry O'Brien championship trophy takes a lot of the air out of the room because it's the signature piece that everyone can identify, but take an honor, like the all team award, which if you think about it, <clears throat> it's kind of like one of the most meaningful things you could get to be first team all NBA. Well, partially because there are a lot of the players have it tied to their contract. Well, so that's a whole other. There's an argument to be made that that is the most important trophy. Yeah. Um, and there's a, whole, <laughs> there's a whole slippery slope of messiness with related to that. Um, but the fact that what the object that had been celebrating that to this point had been an afterthought for what is actually, I think, one of the most interesting and valuable, to your point, uh, awards to get. So something that we put a lot of energy into making the update for that one, which will get unveiled uh, shortly, too. I think most players are more most players of that caliber are more worried about being first team all NBA. Although I guess MVP gives, gives you this lifetime status. It's like winning an Oscar, like former, yeah. former MVP winner that I guess all NBA doesn't, but in that moment it does, you know? Well, I think that was also part of our responsibility was like, was, you know, we, everyone understands the contractual, stakes of winning that award and i think i think the players have a reverence for that award because of what its symbolism was being you know one of the best five in the whole game um but i think by <clears throat> creating something special to symbolize that honor as well it helps raise the profile or raise the reaction or feeling to those moments as well so um, it's exciting and crazy still for me to be able to contribute to those sorts of moments to a sport that's meant so much to me this whole time. Now, let me ask you this. In terms of logistics, do you, do you mail these to them and are the packages insured? What happens if a package is lost? How do yeah. the dynamics of that work? It's, they're very complicated. Um, and the production happens, my side of the production happens literally all over the world. Um, and there's a lot of, a lot of needles to thread when it comes to these sorts of things, but we have a very fine tune. And this is part of, honestly, part of our big learning for year one was like optimizing our processes for this sort of thing. And there's a lot of very specific timings that, you know, we need to have this thing done by this date because that moment could happen and this thing could happen. So learned a ton about doing that, but for every piece that we create, we create a backup um, just in case something bad happens, God forbid. And we've been lucky that nothing has yet. Not so you destroy them or what, what happens to them? Well, this, I mean, maybe, maybe this is a collector moment, but we haven't, this, is year, this is year one. So we don't even know, we don't even know what we're doing with some of them. Some of them are produced agnostic to the winner and year, so they can be repurposed um, with engraving later. So a lot of times we, like a lot of the backups that we've made, for instance, like don't have the engraving of the year on it yet. So what so they we, call, what they call those in the collector world is phantom. 
So like, for example, you have a phantom ticket. So let's say it's game six of the NBA finals and it ends there, but tickets were already printed for game seven. It's a phantom ticket and people cool. collect those. Yeah, interesting. Um, <clears throat> it's a little, it's, uh, that's super interesting. This is a little kind of almost the opposite of that because we're going to use this trophy next year. Oh. Um, because since, since the year is not on it, we can use it to engrave for 22-23 or whatever going forward. So that's cool. So it's kind of phantom in that it's not personalized, but that's a really interesting um, little world that I never even knew about. And then for jerseys, so it's called game issued, but mm -hmm. they don't, if they didn't play in it. Like- Are those valuable? Yeah, yeah. Uh, of the big players so like for example i mean you know i'm sure you know the game jordan's uh jordan's jersey was stolen before the game he had to wear you know number 45 yeah. it's the only game he played in, in in that that jersey that somebody stole is a team issued jersey but jordan obviously didn't play in it that specific one holds a lot of value because the story wherever the heck it is but yeah there there are other ones that so that one's ever surfaced on the market no, it's never surfaced, hmm. yeah, at least not proven. I think the guy would get in trouble because it was stolen. It wasn't, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, bought through an auction. But you think, you think if that came on the market, it would go crazy? Oh yeah, it's a six figure jersey. Maybe Whoa. more. Wow. Yeah, probably Great. somewhere, somewhere between six figures and a million. Yeah. Because of the story that you have to tell with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, the, um, it was in Orlando uh on valentine's day and the they made an announcement on the intercom asking if a fan had a jersey that would fit jordan whoa that's how desperate they were for a number 23 jersey crazy they would imagine going on the speaker at a lakers game being like does anybody have a size double xl number 23 or number six <laughs> now for lebron that he can wear this game that's what they did for jordan and that's, that's never been done before yeah, they ended up giving him a number 45 with no name on the back. Yeah, I mean, it leads me to believe that there's then there's probably duplicates for all players jerseys every game now, right? Mm -hmm. More all than duplicates. Yeah, 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 they're more team issued than game worn. And now I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, but like, now they the players switch jerseys at halftime sometimes, hmm. so that like the NBA auctions can sell too. Oh, really? Yeah, is that the doing that? That sometimes, so like All Star Game, there's a first half game worn, second half game worn. Wow. One of them will go on auction. One of them maybe not. Um, but yeah, they've they've gotten very strategic. Back in the day, I mean, there's um, I'll tell you a, a fun story about a Jordan game worn jersey. So I was at the um, uh, Museum of African American History in Washington D.C. It's a Smithsonian museum, mm -hmm. and they have a, a jersey that Michael personally donated. And all it says on the plaque is that it was worn in, in um, 95-96, their famous season when they set at the time the all-time record for wins in a season, won the championship. It was Jordan's you know, first full year back. And I was looking at it, and I was like, huh, well, that looks like it could be something, but I'm going to assume that it's not because why would Michael donate what I think this is? So mm -hmm. I sent I sent a video to a friend who buys and sells jerseys that are you know six figure million dollar jerseys. He has he owns game worn NBA Finals Michael Jordan jerseys. And I asked him I was like, 
is this what I think it is? And he texted me back an hour later with five photos matching it. And he was like, that's probably the greatest sports jersey that's on public display anywhere in the world. Well, Jordan wore that jersey every single home game of the entire season. Whoa, crazy. It's a $10 million jersey. Crazy. Isn't even labeled in this museum. Uh And, you know, credit to Michael for, you know, donating that to the museum. But, you know, it's it's things like that that, you know, are so fun about, you know, that that world. Maybe the museum doesn't even know. Mm, The museum might not even know what it is because they didn't label it as what Mm. it is. Um, but back in the day, players used to wear the same jersey the entire season. I had them. Um, superstition. Right. So, tra- well, no, just they didn't get more jerseys. <laughs> they didn't get them. Um, I asked Tracy McGrady. He, he was on the podcast last week. And I was like, do you remember, you know, in, when he was in Orlando, I asked him, I was like, how many jerseys did you wear? And he uh-huh. was like none like only only a couple um it's it's just a funny conversation but i i look at the trophies in that you know in a similar light in terms of historical value not just monetary but historical significance and you know i i do think you know some of these will be in museums one day whether they're bought by the museum or or on loan because that's usually what happens with most of the stuff anyways Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, that's a cool thing that I've been so in the thick of all this stuff that I haven't even thought past this year yet. So I think like, it's still, we just saw um, the new Larry O'Brien the other day for the first time, because we had all the designs and all the, all the cat and stuff like that, but to actually see it in gold and it's, it's wild. So I haven't even thought ahead to like, what the life of these things could be afterwards yet oh yeah um, there, there, there will be one in the hall of fame i'd, I'd bet the farm on it which is yeah. a pretty cool thought yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't have you ever been no i haven't been no it's special you, you gotta go but they have um i mean they have a they have a bunch of trophies they have you know a bunch of game-worn sneakers and jerseys they have a full basketball court which you can play on with all the different hoops from you would actually really like that they have every backboard ever used for basketball um, all the way back to the the basket Um, yeah cool have you ever thought about i mean i i know there's been progression with the backboard in the nba but is has that ever been a thought that crossed your mind yeah what do you, is there room for improvement there? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it at. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I'll have to leave that one there, but, but I agree. I think that's a great cliffhanger. Well, Victor, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you and your work? Um, you can find me at literallyballing.com, at Victor Solomon on Instagram, and at literallyballing on Instagram too. Amazing. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Thanks, man. Perfect. That was great.